With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Yasmin Abutalib, a White House reporter here at The Post. Today, my guest is Chris Whipple, a documentary filmmaker and author. He's out with a new book called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Chris, welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, So I just want to start by what prompted you to write this book now. You chronicle the first two years of the Biden administration where they, of course, sort of careen from crisis to crisis from the moment they took office. What made you decide to write the book at this point in Biden's presidency, as opposed to at the end of his first term or perhaps the end of a second term if he if he wins one? Probably just because I always do things the hard way. Um, trying to write a book on the first two years of a presidency in progress is a little bit like designing an airplane in mid-flight. You're getting buffeted by a COVID variant coming out of from one place and then a, a, an unexpected invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you don't know where you're going to land and you just hope you can do it safely. Uh, but you look, I think the answer to that question is, how could I not write this book? Joe Biden and his team came into office facing the most daunting challenges since FDR's time, a once in a century pandemic, a crippled economy, racial injustice, the aftermath of a bloody attempted insurrection and all that before a Russian tyrant invaded a democracy in the heart of Europe. Um, So how could anybody with a political or storytelling bone in his body not want to write that story, especially if you could tell it from the inside, uh, talking to almost all of Biden's inner circle, which luckily I was able to do. Well, I want to I want to talk about that. So one person who's featured extensively in your book, more than anyone else other than uh, President Biden and former President Trump, is his chief of staff, Ron Klain. Um, I was at this event last night uh, that was a transition event between Ron Klain and, and Jeff Zients, who is now going to be the new chief of staff. Uh, it was very teary. You could tell you know, that the two men had been together for a long time, almost 40 years. Ron couldn't get through most of his speech without crying. Um, and and said some you know very sort of nice personal things about Biden as a father and just as a the Bidens as a family. Um, you sat down with him for a long time for this book, and he shared quite a bit with you. What do you think made him so open to sitting with you and and for such extended periods of time? And what did you glean about him and his time in the White House from those interviews? Well, you're right because it's surprising that uh, he would open up as much as he did uh, to me because this is one of the most battened down, disciplined, leak-proof, on-script White Houses in recent memory, uh, certainly compared to the last one where the bar was unbelievably low. Um, But I was able to do it, and I think partly because I think my reputation preceded me in the form of uh, The Gatekeepers, my book on the White House Chiefs of Staff. I I know that Ron Klein felt that was a really fair account. I mean, it was it was nonpartisan. It was right down the middle, um, and I think I had a reputation for fairness. So, when the chief of staff opens the door a little bit, 
then other doors start to open. But I have to say it was a battle um, for every interview, uh, you know, on a, on a daily basis for, for two years. So feels all the more rewarding to have um, to have come out of it with with some real inside stories. Um, <clears throat> the relationship between Ron Klain and Joe Biden is just phenomenal. I mean, you think about it, 36 years of working together. Um, I can't think of any parallel for that. And nobody was better be prepared than Ron Klain. He'd worked for nine previous Democratic chiefs of staff, uh, which is pretty extraordinary. They had a relationship and um, a really deep bond. And what that does is it gives a chief of staff the ability to tell a president hard truths, uh, things he doesn't want to hear. That's going to be a challenge for Jeff Zients, who is uh, a remarkable guy with a lot of ability, but without that three decades old bond. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second, because um, Ron and Jeff are going to be extremely different chiefs of staff. And it seems that the role is is going to have to be redefined with Jeff Zients in there for a number of reasons. I mean, he doesn't have the like you mentioned, the, the 30 or 40 year bond with Biden. They don't have that personal relationship. Um, you know, they they know each other, but but not in the same way. He's not one of these one of the old hands that, that Biden sort of keeps around. Um, and then, of course, Ron is stepping down just as they are getting ready for what is a widely expected re-election run. Ron basically confirmed that yesterday uh, when he said, I, I look forward to standing by your side when you run again in 2024. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of a, a two-part question, but what do you make of Ron choosing to step down now as opposed to in 2022, which he had talked to you, to, talked to you about doing at some point? And what do you think Jeff's challenges will be in that role or how the job will change with him there? So in my book, The Fight of His Life, um, I really tell th that whole story of Ron's evolution through through the first term. And there's this really uh, dramatic scene where I, I went to visit him nine months into Biden's presidency. It was really, I think, the low point of the Biden presidency, looking back. Uh, Biden at that point had gone through months of futility trying to pass his ambitious, uh, some would say extravagant Build Back Better uh, bill and bipartisan infrastructure, and they were both still sputtering. Biden went off to Europe to the uh, to the climate conference in Glasgow empty-handed, and I went to see Klein that Saturday at the White House. We sat on the patio outside his West Wing office, and uh, you know Biden had just said that uh, his his entire agenda was at stake and maybe even his presidency if he didn't pass those two bills. Uh, Klain thought it was 50-50 at that point uh, that they would pass them. And and he also confided to me that he was thinking about quitting. He was nine months in. He was thinking about quitting before the end of the year. He was absolutely exhausted. There's a reason why the average tenure for a White House chief of staff is 18 months. It's, it's absolutely... Uh, thankless and relentless and 24-7. And <clears throat> he went home and he talked to, to his wife about it. And he ultimately decided, as as you can read in the book, he decided to stay through up to the two-year mark, through the midterms, 
And the reason is he was a student of history. He knew what happened, what had happened to previous Democratic chiefs when they'd been thrust into uh, the job shortly before the midterms without time to prepare. And they'd been shellacked, as Barack Obama famously put it. So Klain wanted to avoid that. And boy, you can be sure that Joe Biden is grateful that he stayed because Biden followed Ron Klain's blueprint and defied 60 years of history in those midterms. He, he defied all the predictions, as you know. Oh, I want to get to an audience question still on Ron Klain. Um, David Marker from California asks, how does Ron Klain compare to other chiefs of staff in history? You know, it's, I really have to say that, uh, you know, having written a, a, a book on the White House chiefs of staff uh, some years ago and having, having gotten to know um, all of them, um, that Klain really belongs in the elite group of White House chiefs, uh, the great ones. Uh, James A. Baker III under Ronald Reagan, Leon Panetta under Bill Clinton. There would have been no Reagan revolution without James Baker. I think Clinton could very well have been a one-term president without Leon Panetta. Um, those guys had have a you, almost a unique skill set. Uh, White House experience, knowledge of Capitol Hill, managerial acumen, uh, at a relationship with the boss, a good working relationship, and maybe most underrated of all, a first-class temperament. Uh, Klain has that, Baker and Panetta had it, and um, fortunately for Joe Biden, I think Jeff Zients has it. You know, he's, he's a guy who's pretty ego-free, um, much like Klain in that respect. So, but Ron Klain belongs on the short list of great White House chiefs. Well, let's talk about Jeff Zients for a second. So he is obviously coming in with with very different experience. Um, he's not a political animal in the same way that Ron Klain is. He's he's kind of a government technocrat. He helped fix the, the troubled rollout of healthcare.gov during the Obama administration. He was, of course, the COVID czar for the first year of the Biden administration. So, I mean, you've, you've covered White House chiefs of staff extensively. How do you think this role is going to look under Zions compared to how it did under Klain? And what strengths and weaknesses do you think he's bringing into the job? Well, I'm going to say two things that may sound contradictory. Um, on the one hand, it's true that Jeff Zients is, is not Ron Klain. Um, he has a lot of remarkable ability, and he's a managerial genius. Uh, there's a reason why Dennis McDonough went to him to fix the Obamacare website. He was the only guy who could do it, and he did it. Um, <clears throat> so he's a, he's a guy who can make government work. There's no doubt about it. What he, la he lacks Ron Klain's deep political savvy and relationships on Capitol Hill. And he also, of course, doesn't, can't match Klain's three decades long uh, bond with the, uh, with the boss. Um, so it'll be a little different. And I think, that, I think that Biden, as a result, may very well lean more heavily on Steve Reschetti, on his, on his, you know, his aides, Steve Reschetti and Jen O'Malley, Dillon and Mike Donilon and Anita Dunn uh, for political advice. But having said that, he, I'm, here's the contradictory thing, or what may sound it. 
it would be a real mistake to change the model uh, because every president learns often the hard way that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a White House chief as first among equals uh, to execute your agenda and most importantly, tell you what you don't want to hear. And I think Jeff Zients would be wise to resist any effort to uh, diminish his authority in any way. You've got to have it to be an effective White House chief of staff. Well, if, if Biden is relying on aides like Steve Reschetti or Mike Donilon, Anita Dunn, these people who have been with him for a long time, a bit more heavily because Ron is not there, does that put Jeff Zients in a weaker position? It could. It could. I'm just saying that, um, you know, Zeiss has to make sure that he's the gatekeeper, that he's the one who uh, is, as I say, first among equals. Um, you know, Joe Biden has always relied on on this inner circle. And there, as we as you know, there are a number of them. Uh, and for the first two years, it was a little bit like the um, like Reagan's Troika, uh, famously James A. Baker III, Ed Meese, and Michael Deaver, uh, except it was uh, Ron Klain, uh, Steve Reschetti, and, and Mike Donilon, uh, a rough analogy. But Klain was first among equals. He was the Jim Baker in the mix. And I think uh, Zeitz, if he's wise, he'll make sure that he is. Well, I'm sure we're going to come back to the chiefs of staff, but I want to go to uh, Vice President Kamala Harris for a minute. Your book focuses in part on what Biden really thinks of Harris. The Washington Post this week put out a story about how more than a dozen Democratic leaders and states all over the country are worried about her political prospects and her strengths and weaknesses in, in the vice presidency, uh, You know that she wouldn't be strong enough to mount her own presidential campaign on the off chance that Biden decided to step aside. So can you talk a little bit about what you called their their complicated relationship? Yeah, it's complicated and it's fascinating, I think. Um, in the beginning, there's no question but that uh, Joe Biden liked having her around. He wanted her in almost every meeting he had, not just the president's daily brief in the morning, but but uh, all the other meetings as well. He, he welcomed her input and... Uh, Often, uh, often, sometimes followed her lead. Uh, it, things got a little bit more complicated, a, a lot more complicated, uh, when she began and began to draw fire for her handling of the Northern Triangle, that trip to Guatemala when she had that awkward interview with Lester Holt of NBC, um, and her allies began to complain publicly that her portfolio was too difficult. That in effect, it was mission impossible, the Northern Triangle and voting rights, and, and she was being set up to fail. Um, word finally got back to the president that it wasn't just her, some of her friends, but it was the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, who was complaining around town about this. Well, that didn't sit well with, with President Biden because after all, he hadn't asked her to do anything he hadn't done. Under Barack Obama, he'd had the Northern Triangle. She had asked for voting rights. So as I write in the book, at one point, a, a close friend of Biden said, how's she doing? And, and the president replied, a work in progress. Um, but having said that, that there, I have some terrific stories in the book um, about some of the assignments that she carried out in the national security arena 
uh, some of them unreported, uh, never told before, including a meeting with Zelensky on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine when she took him aside and met with him privately and said, look, not only are the Russians coming for Ukraine, they're coming for you personally, your wife and your family, and you need to be ready. He was still skeptical. And when he left, she turned to one of her aides and said, I wonder if that's the last time we see him alive. I know when um, Zelensky was here in, in December, there were some uh, White House officials, members of Congress remarking uh, that it was just amazing to see him in Washington alive almost a year after the invasion when you know, there were all these warnings, like you like you said and like you outlined in the book, uh, that if he stayed, you know, the, the Russians would target him and he probably wouldn't live. It shocked everyone, uh, including Bill Burns, uh, the CIA director. I, I've spent uh, a lot of time uh, talking to Bill Burns about Zelensky and, and about Ukraine and, and some of his secret missions uh, in the walk up to the war. You know, I really see the book and the and the Biden presidency so far as a political thriller in three acts. And the first act, of course, was this unbelievably fraught transition that we think we we thought we knew all about, but but you don't really until you read the book because I have an untold story about an obscure Trump official who made the wheels of the transition turn. And the second act I see is that very first year where, which was overshadowed by, of course, the, the bungled uh, evacuation of Afghanistan and the decline in the president's approval rating. But the third act and the turning point of the Biden presidency, in my view, was February 24, 2022, when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and Joe Biden rose to meet that moment. And in contrast to Afghanistan, they everyone did almost everything right. It was phenomenal from the intelligence community. I think it was the CIA's finest hour since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 uh, in the walk up to rallying NATO. None of the NATO leaders believed uh, what Biden was saying, uh, but they they had Putin dead to rights. Uh, Bill Burns gave Zelensky the the blueprint for the invasion as and as a result. They were waiting for the Russians when they came. Um, so I think that was the turning point. And of course, it led to it, it was followed by uh, Biden having a really successful run of legislative victories. And of course, the midterms, which defied the odds. So it's uh, it's a political thriller with no ending yet. Yeah, we'll have to see how how 2023 goes for them. Um, I want to, before we move on, I, I want to get to one audience question. Uh, this is from Bonnie Nelson in Virginia, who asks, do you think Biden will keep Harris as his vice president for the 2024 election and give her more responsibilities? I think almost without a doubt, he will keep Kamala Harris uh, as vice president. You know, that's a very rare thing in American history for a president to uh, to throw his vice president under the bus. Um, the last time it happened was Jerry Ford with Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, and prior to that, uh, FDR with Henry Wallace in 1940. So <clears throat> I think there's there's no chance he's going to, he's going to dump Kamala Harris, yeah, he, despite all the worries that you, you mentioned earlier um, about her, her potential weakness. Um, so, yeah, I think she's certainly been stepping it up 
to some extent, um, leading the charge against the Supreme Court's overruling of, of Roe v. Wade and leading the, the fight for women's reproductive rights. Uh, but I think the mystery about Kamala Harris is still, why isn't she more visible? Why isn't she more prominent? Um, I don't think the White House has been muzzling her. I know Ron Klain talks to her on a regular basis and says, look, you can't score runs from the dugout. You got to get out there and, and we'll support you. But she's been wary of it for whatever reason. So, I mean, you mentioned um, in 2022, they had this this pretty remarkable stretch, starting with their response to the invasion of Ukraine, of course, culminating in much better than expected midterm results. 2023 has been off to a little bit of a rocky start. Um, obviously, there are reports came out and the White House confirmed that classified documents were found at uh, Biden's private office, uh, his think tank in D.C., and then another set of them were found at his home in Wilmington. It's been playing out and trickling out. Um, in January, the president said he had no regrets that the White House did not disclose that those documents had been found right away, uh, which, of course, they were discovered right before the midterm elections. You've talked about this, but I want to know, I mean, what did you make of, of Biden's comment that he had no regrets? And how do you think uh, they've handled this issue generally? Well, it's it's been a surprise the way they've handled this generally, because this is not this doesn't look like a Ron Klain operation, does it? I mean, this is a, this is a well-run, disciplined White House uh, that uh, tends not to have these kinds of slip ups. And to me, it's one of the mysteries of the of the um, recent of recent history is um, why Ron Klain didn't have his arms around this problem. And, and it, it, it seems to me that it was the lawyers were in charge of this one uh, and they were advising Joe Biden uh, in no uncertain terms, uh, do not talk about this or reveal this. Let's just deal with it quietly. And ordinarily in a situation like that, it's the White House chief's job, if he's a good one, to sit down with Bob Bauer, the president's lawyer, and say, hey, look, Bob, um, this is not going to help us. It's going to be really bad for us if it comes out that we've been sitting on this for two months and not being transparent about it. Um, I don't think that happened. I don't think Klain was in the loop here. I could be wrong. Um, and I'll have to ask Ron next time I talk to him. Well, I would love to know the answer to that as well. Um, do you think, was your sense that the, the White House, or at least, you know, maybe not the lawyers, but parts of the communication staff, the more political staff, um, once this all sort of played out and you had this drip, drip, drip of revelations, wish they had handled it differently? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they wish that they'd been given a, a longer leash uh, to be more forthcoming about it. I'm sure Corrine would, would the, the press secretary, really wishes she could have been more transparent and, and forthcoming, but she couldn't, um, and it's not her call. Um, so I don't know that she'd have any regrets or, or Kate Bedingfield. I mean, it's not, it's not their call, it's the president's call. So um, I'm sure they would have preferred to have more information, but uh, at the end of the day, that's, that's the boss's call. And I mean, do you think this, this whole issue with the classified documents, which could take a few months to resolve, um, will impact Biden's chances in re-election at all or make his his uh, his run 
this time around complicated, more complicated than it otherwise would have been? Look, I think they have to be careful. I think Jeff Science has to really keep his eye on it. But having said that, uh, my gut feeling is that we won't be talking about this at all in 2024. This will be behind them, uh, unless there's much more to it than meets the eye. And it really seems to be a case that's not remote, well, only comparable to Trump's in that they were classified documents. Uh, but this bears no comparison to the, you know, shameless obstruction of the uh, Department of Justice uh, on the part of Trump. And so I don't think it's going to be a big problem unless there's much more to it than meets the eye. Well, we only have a, a few minutes left. So I, of course, want to ask you um, about your your book's documentation of uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I believe you called a, a whole of government failure. What stuck out to you uh, from that whole um, episode? And, and what do you think were, were some of the root causes of why uh, the pullout was, was so uh, catastrophic in some ways? What struck me was the extent to which there was so much more drama behind the closed doors than any of us realized at the time. And, I, and you, can, you can read about it in, in my book. Um, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, told me in no uncertain terms that Everything they did was based on a fatally flawed intelligence assessment that the Afghan regime would last for 18 months. This was news to uh, CIA Director Bill Burns when I went and sat down with him at Langley and we talked about it. And he said, look, we we said that if you pulled out two legs of the stool, namely the U.S. military and the American contractors, that that was a recipe for everything falling apart very quickly. Uh, and Mark Milley gave me yet another um, assessment saying he thought they had until Thanksgiving. What's clear is that it really was a, 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 what I call a whole of government failure. Uh, everybody did almost everything wrong, uh, starting with uh, the, the intelligence assessment of the, how long the government would last. They had too few troops on the ground to execute that evacuation. There were only 700 at the time. And um, they simply thought they had more time. Uh, that, but, but in fairness to Joe Biden and his team, I think the die was cast when Donald Trump had his half-baked negotiation with the Taliban previously and set a deadline of May 1st. Uh, Biden moved that deadline, as we know, to August 31st. But the moment Trump set that deadline, the Afghan government knew, they saw the writing on the wall, they knew the Americans were going to hit the road, and guess what? They hit the road first. Well, we've got about two minutes left, so I want to ask you one final question. Uh, you've said that you think Biden enters his third year with new momentum. Obviously, it's been a very eventful January. We are now at the beginning of a fight over the debt limit. Um, in addition to the classified documents. So, I mean, is that still your assessment one month in, or what are you um, expecting to see or interested to see play out over this year? Yeah, I think he does have momentum. But having said that, I wrote a, uh, an op-ed for the New York Times uh, the other day in which I said that even, even having come through the most daunting challenges since FDR's time, now comes the hard part. You've got an octogenarian president running for re, in a bruising re-election battle. Uh, he, he may well be up against Donald Trump again. I think everybody underestimates uh, Trump still. 
Uh, I think the Biden White House has their eye on him, however. Uh, I think they believe that democracy is on the ballot in 2024. Uh, that's just for openers. You, it, Biden has to avoid a recession and control inflation. He's got to keep NATO unified against Vladimir Putin. He's got to implement all the legislation of the first two years because it's all, none of it means anything until the rubber hits the road. He's got to uh, stand up to, to the, the staying power of MAGA and Trumpism. That's the one thing that shocked Joe Biden more than anything else during his presidency was the lasting power of Trumpism. Uh, he thought it would be in the rearview mirror by now. Uh, but as I say, it's very much with us. And uh, he may very well be running against Trump again in 2024. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But Chris Whipple, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.